open up your word. I pray that we would learn, God. I pray that we would, uh, we would be changed. I pray, Lord, that we would, I think of your servant, Paul, and I think of his cry to know you and the power of your resurrection, the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray today, Lord, that as we look at your word, that your spirit would do something unique in our heart. I pray we would see the urgency, we would see the call to respond, that we would be moved and we would be touched, Lord, that you would change our affections, you'd grow them, you would point them towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, as we get started, why don't we go to the book of Romans real fast. I want us to be reminded again of uh, a key passage in our study as we look at the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 15, Romans 15 is a good reminder of, of really what we're doing as we look to the Old Testament. And let's read verse 4. Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, 1 Kings is going to be our place that we're going to explore, 1 Kings chapter 14. I hope that, I remember as a kid hearing things in church that I don't know about you, but as you get older, uh, it's weird how different things come back in your mind. And I remember being... uh, my kids' ages, my older kids' ages, and I remember hearing my father often say that whatever he preached, God would so often give him a laboratory of life to see those truths in relation to living. And I don't know about you, but I, I find that the Holy Spirit is uniquely weaving what I'm learning in this storyline of the book of 1 Kings, and he's drawing me back to the truth that he's teaching me, and he's calling me to live out what I'm learning. And I'll tell you, there's a struggle that's involved here. There's a struggle of flesh and spirit because life has a way of revealing what's on the inside of us. And circumstances and people and situations will occur. And in those situations, are we going to look to ourselves for wisdom or are we going to submit our way to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? This morning, we're continuing. We're looking at this saga, this storyline. I'll tell you, have you ever been going down Mont Eagle and you realize you're going a little bit too hot? And you start like going, wait a minute, this is getting out of hand because you're already maybe going a little bit over, and all of a sudden you get the hill with it, and you're thinking, man, I better not be doing this at 87, you know, coming down the hill. I got to slow way down, like to 50, way back. And you're hitting those brakes like, get, get a hold of this. I feel like when we got into this section, I was very ambitious, 
And many of you encouraged me, slow down, man, slow down. And, and we, we, we tried to cover like six chapters in one message, and we slowed down. And, and I'm glad we did, and I'm glad that uh, I listened to the exhortation of the flock. Uh, and, 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 and here we're looking at these responses in light of what we're learning in the storyline. And there's so many. You could add a lot more to what I've got. You could come up with a bunch, and, and it would be just as correct. I'm giving you those that have hit my heart. One of them here is we're learning in the storyline of Jeroboam, a call to humility. Here's a man that he lived out of his pride. We can learn from him. He, uh, whether it was his, uh, the way his fear manifested and the way he acted off of his fear and, and worry, the way that uh, he sought after counsel when he didn't need to seek after counsel, God had spoken. When we hear, thus saith the Lord, we can take that to the bank. He, he went on and he, he sought after his own kingdom. He, he, he made God into his own image. We see a call to obedience because we look at the chapter 13 and as confusing as it is that this, this man of God from Judah goes to Bethel. And there he is and he not only calls out uh, King Jeroboam, but later on has an encounter with this, uh, this prophet from Bethel, this other man. And, and all the confusing ways in which we might navigate through this story, one thing is clear. God calls his people to obedience. And there's just, there's, there, there is absolute consequences for disobedience, which should bring us back to the reality that, yes, in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation, but it cost our Lord Jesus Christ his life because of the cost of sin. Jesus gave his life for us. He is the obedient one. And in his sacrifice, we find life forgiveness. But we see in chapter 13 this call to obedience, and then we see a call to repentance. Isn't it amazing that a man that was so seeking after his own way and his own ambition that we see examples of the kindness of God that was bringing him, calling him to repentance. And Jeroboam was obstinate. He was hardened. It was like he went to a place of no return. I, I went to uh, my best friend growing up. He, 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 him and his father-in-law own a place at Cannon Beach in Oregon. And uh, when I visited there before, we went out to over there by Haystack Rock, if you're familiar with those pictures, of that huge rock out in the water. And over there near there, he always says, man, come on, dude, let's go over here. And I'm like, where are we going? He goes, look, the tide's out. We got one hour, one hour. And I'm like, what happens if we don't get back in one hour? He goes, we drowned. Come on. And that water, when the tide goes out, it opens up the, the beach right there. And that, uh, there's some sand there, and you can go around, and it is so cool back there. But he's always looking at his watch. We got to go, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And we get back, and sure enough, when the tide comes back in, water's just pounding those rocks. You see, Jeroboam was around that rock, so to speak, and thought he had all the time in the world, but he reached a point of no return. He was hardened and obstinate, and there wasn't any more opportunity because this man had hardened his heart. And so now we see this morning, as we move into chapter 14, we see this call to humility, a call to obedience, a call to repentance. 
And now we're going to see two more here as we finish out the storyline of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. This morning we'll finish chapter 14. We'll move into the next storyline. Here we are in chapter 14. We see a call to urgency and we see a call to action. A call to urgency and a call to action. Let's pick up in chapter 14 in verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And remember, the prophet, his name is Ahijah. The son is named Abijah. That can be confusing, but just remember there's a difference here. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. That's a fascinating verse. Um, he, if you read a little further, and we're going to come back, um, what does he say? He says, and it's just fascinating. He, he basically is, 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 is envisioning that if he sends his wife to the prophet, the prophet, hopefully, you can sense that he's thinking, hopefully, will give him a positive word from the Lord. So he says, but he wants her not to go as his wife. He wants her to go disguised. And he thinks that he can disguise her and that not only God will not see, it's the idea that almost like the prophet will not see. Who does the prophet represent? God. He's God's spokesperson. It's almost like he's fallen into the trap to think that he can manipulate God to the point that God is not aware. Isn't that the height of deception? Friend, God sees what's going on in your life this morning. And I don't say that to you in a way of condemnation. I say that to you in a way of like, let us not diminish the character of God that we lose sight of his omniscience and his omnipresence. His omniscience speaks of his all-knowing. And his omnipresence speaks of his ever-present presence everywhere. You remember the psalmist says, where shall I go from your presence? But when we get confused and we become hardened in the way that we're thinking and sinful in our choices, we begin to diminish the power of God and we begin to act as if that God is impressed with appearances, and we begin to fall into the trap that just like we can disguise ourselves in front of others, maybe we can do the same thing to the very people of God. I mean, the, the prophet of God. Maybe we can be hidden in the eyes of God. Well, I, th- I was thinking about this. We all clean up pretty well sometimes, right? We can come in looking sharp. We can look upstanding in our careers, We can seem like we have our act together with our families, but God sees the reality of our hearts. I mean, it's amazing what a few dollars, some nice vehicles, nice home, law-abiding citizens, attendance at church, kids that don't act as bad as they do at home in public. It's amazing how that can sell itself, isn't it? And we can literally sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that that type of facade. Now, I'm not saying it's always a facade. If it's not a facade, this morning, let it be an opportunity to thank the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that? This morning, 
it's not that every, every person here is going to apply to the, the bad example or the application point. If you're thinking, by the grace of God, I'm seeking to be transparent in my life, praise the Lord Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. But friend, I think we all relate to the individual because we've all been one of them who were living with a facade. We were living with a veneer. We were living with a disguise in which it appeared one way, but we weren't really allowing people to see the reality. This is a good example. I was thinking, you know, you could be the, whether it's the uh, upstanding career man, whether it's the popular, popular athlete who has a great smile and all the mamas adore, may not be the reality of the heart. It's like we might be tempted to think that we can disguise and substitute for the real thing, but here, let's learn, because none of us are exempt. You see, God sees behind the mask. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson. I love hearing him talk. He's got an amazing accent. And he was talking about a guy that, uh, a pastor that, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, you may never heard of this man. He's a wonderful man, now in heaven. And James Montgomery Boyce uh, Ferguson was relating the story of his ministry in Europe as a younger man. And in the area where Boyce was ministering, there was a lot of immorality and drunkenness, and it was a party, party kind of European city. And, 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 and Boyce noted that a lot of the way that the people partied had to do almost like with a Mardi Gras kind of flair with masks. And, and it was masks everywhere. And some of the evangelicals that were seeking to minister in that area they bought some billboards, and the billboards said in their language, God sees behind the mask. Amen. He does. He saw behind the mask of Jeroboam's wife. You see, later on, we, we, we see this uh, reminder that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, if I say... Uh, have you ever thought you were doing something out of sight, but somebody saw you? I mean, maybe you were a kid and you were doing some prank. I remember when, uh, I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but I remember when we were taking off every license plate on the campus of Bryan College and we thought we were out of sight. And I remember this young lady looked out her window at three in the morning and we now were in the sight of trouble. She revealed what we were doing. I was thinking I was out of sight and now it was there. When we live our lives, it is not just in the sight of people at times. It is in the sight of the Lord. And Jeroboam is, is, is encouraging his wife, and it re reveals his misunderstanding of who God is. I pray today this story would encourage you to understand who God is. He sees, friend. He sees your heart. He sees your motives. He sees your thoughts. And I pray that that reality would bring you to this sense of urgency. You see, what he tells her to do is, he says, look, he says in verse 2, he said, Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there. He said of me that I should be king over his people, over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. It's almost like he's taking some honey buns, right, you know? Um, ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey. Ten loaves, it's interesting because you remember when Ahijah 
declared that he was going to be the king, he ripped his new garment and gave him 10 pieces of the new garment. This is almost like, uh, makes you wonder, doesn't it? Is this a subtle way of like, you know, 10, 10, is this going to sell him on that or make him remember, giving positive information? I don't know. We didn't, the text doesn't say that, but isn't it interesting to ponder? We, we look at this and he goes, she goes, but, but what happens is, verse 4 Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh, came to the house of Ahijah. Now, Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. Better yet, I got a disguise on her, and he can't see. I got it, but what happens? What do we know? God sees. God sees. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Now, now, what happens next? Thus and thus shall you say to her, when she came, she pretended to be another woman, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Uh-oh. The blind, you know, the guy almost blind is calling her out. God sees through the disguise. I heard another story. Uh, a gentleman named Ralph Davis said, Spurgeon had some examples of how God worked mysteriously to expose. And, and one of the stories that uh, was a, a man had been converted hearing God's word, and, and his wife was not, she didn't like what her husband had, had experienced. And she was sort of interested in peering into Spurgeon's church. And she came in, and, and the story goes like this, See, she, one Lord's evening, she, after her husband had left for the service, insatiable curiosity, she did, came over her. She determined to go hear Spurgeon. She did not wish to be recognized and so tried to disguise herself by putting on a thick veil and a heavy shawl and to minimize visibility by going up to the upper gallery. She was, of course, late reaching the building, and so just as she entered, she heard Spurgeon, Spurgeon say, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? It's a, it's a humorous story, but it's a great reminder, isn't it? God sees. He sees. He's aware. You realize he sees what we seek to conceal? But think about it. As you go a little further down the rope, you know, you get right here and you think about how this immediate applies, but think about the implications. God sees what others seek to conceal. You ever thought, wait a minute, this isn't right? Uh, do you realize God sees your sin? He sees your deception. He sees others' sin. He sees others' deception. He sees when others wrong you. I pray we believe that. God sees. I tell you, uh, recently I've been reminded to go back to the pattern of prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And I went to God with something heavy on my heart this morning. And I was reminded, our Father, our Father, what does that mean? He cares. He's our Father. He's not an earthly Father. He's a heavenly Father. Our, our Father who art in heaven before I'm bringing my request to God, I'm reminded that he resides in heaven. And then it says, hallowed be thy name. All of a sudden, it's like, please be reminded before you even bring your daily request that 
the number one goal in your prayer is that God's name be revered. God's name be honored. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Wait a minute. I got my request, God. And I'm reminded before I ever bring it to him, the priority of my life is not even in my petition. The priority of my life is that you are God in heaven. Your name be holy, revered above all. May your kingdom come, your will be done. And then I say, give us this day our daily breath. And then I bring the request. But by the time you get to the request, it softens everything in the backdrop to realize, is it possible that even in my request, God is aiming at a different outcome than even I perceive. Be encouraged by that. He's a God who sees all. He's a holy God. He's a God above all. He's ever-present. He's fully aware. He sees every situation perfectly. We can rest in it. The God who is capable of seeing perfectly is worthy of our worship. But think with me, friend. The God who sees perfectly sees your heart. Jeremiah says it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then the prophet says, speaking from the Lord, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Now think about it. The God who sees all searches and he explores. He seeks out. And I pray that you would see this morning. Because he's the God who sees all, we need a Savior. Jesus came, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And now the God, who perfectly sees, looks at us, and what does he see? The righteousness of his Son. Amen? That's good news, friend. The God who sees, sees your sin, sees your depravity. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor. But he's so good, friend. He comes, to Christ Jesus, to die in your place. And by grace through faith in him alone, now the God who sees everything perfectly, he looks upon those who trust in him and he sees the righteousness of his son that covers you. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's the only hope we have. But in the storyline, go tell Jeroboam. He's got news for his wife. And the Lord gives it to the prophet. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. 
And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When you're feeding her the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger and he will give Israel up Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah and as she came to the threshold of the house the child died and all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. Wow. I was thinking about this. It's too late now. He was now aware of the disastrous consequences to those he loved. Himself. His family. His nation. I was thinking about this. He didn't see the urgency. He didn't see the urgency. And now he recognizes it's too late. What can we learn from this? I think sometimes it's only by the Spirit's grace that we come to see things as urgent in our life. Would you agree? I... uh, we recently celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And uh, Anne is the, I mean, what a gift she is to me. 20 years. Y'all, y'all give her, give her a great prayer to live with me. And we had such a good time. Stan said, amen. I'm coming after you, buddy. The, uh, and uh, we got a chance to celebrate in Asheville, North Carolina. We left Monday and got back Wednesday night. And we had an awesome time. Tuesday, we were like, let's go hike. So... I, I messed up, y'all. So um, I was driving, and I, uh, I had about, I, I was good on gas, I thought, and um, I had like 60 miles, and I was like, well, I'll hit a gas station, because I was looking at the GPS, and it was like 40 miles to the hiking place, and I still had 25, and I had an additional 20 that's the extra after zero, so I had 45, <laughs> so I wasn't worried about it. So we got to the, uh, but here's where I messed up. We got to the hiking area, and, and there was a big sign. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, like on GPSs, sometimes when you put in the hiking area, it doesn't take you to the trailhead. It takes you to some crazy place. And we got there, and there was a big sign, and it said, this is not Graveyard Falls. That's the hiking area. It said, you got to keep going up the highway, but it made it sound like it wasn't that far. It just made it sound like it was up there a little bit right there, and you take a right, and there you're good. So I was like, all right, it's not a big deal. We're not going that far. Well, wrong. And I'm like, now I'm, not, I'm distracted by that. Well, now we're driving in the Pisgah National Forest, and we're going up a mountain, and gas is going quicker. And now I'm like, I remember at one point I looked at Ann. I said, Ann, we got a problem, I think. I think I messed up really bad, really bad. I'm already begging for forgiveness, and 
Uh, I'm forecasting the future of doom so she could be prepared. And I'm like, I messed up. I messed up. I don't know why. I don't know how I did this. But now I've got like 17 miles. But I don't think I can even turn around and get back 17. I hope it's up here. Well, we get, long story short, we get to the top of the Pisgah National Forest, which is at the top of the Blue Ridge Parkway. And we're at 6,200 feet. And there's no gas stations on the Blue Ridge Parkway. So I'm now going, okay, this is not good. I got zero miles left, but I got 14 left, I think. So I go up to this guy, and I'm like, hey, man, I come in admitting. It's like when I go to the dentist, I come in admitting I hadn't been flossing. I came in, and I said, look, I messed up. I messed up. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm the dumbest human alive, the worst husband. And I was like, I'm in trouble. I have zero miles. And the guy looked at me like, oh, boy. And he sat there, and, I, and then I saw another truck. I was like, hang on a second. I ran up to this other guy. I was like, what do you think, man? What do you think? He's like, I don't know where I'm at either. And I was like, You're, eyes, you have a good day. So I went back to the other guy, and the guy said, hey, man. He goes, we're at the top of the Pisgah National Forest. He goes, go down here behind me, and he goes, put that thing in neutral and go down all the mountain. And he goes, you're going to come down that mountain. And he goes, there's a granny's gas station at the bottom. And I think there's a pump there, buddy. I think you can do it. And I was like, you the man, you the man. So I turned around and I backed out of that thing. And I was like, and here we go. And I put that thing in neutral. We went almost eight miles in neutral down the mountain. I got to the, okay, when I got to the top of that mountain, let me tell you something. What wasn't urgent before became very urgent. Friend, I want you to, we did get gas at the bottom of the mountain. And uh, praise be to God for that. But they didn't take anything but cash, so we had to look for change in the car. So anyway, so, all right. But I want you to think with me. I want you to think with me. At the top of that mountain, I had a different realization of what my need really was. I pray, friend. I pray, friend. There's a sense of urgency that's not urgent. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take the stories of these men, and I pray that God would reach in down into the depths of your soul to help you to see that, that look at what happened to Jeroboam and look at this man and look at the consequences that came upon his family. Look at the consequences he endured. He was not urgent to the things of God. And I pray today, friend, that we would say right now as we're sitting here looking at this text, we would say, dear God, would you help me to see the urgency? Would you pray that with me? Because we need the aid of the Holy Spirit in order to see this. Friend, there's an apathy and a complacency amongst so many of us where we can be challenged with the word of God, and by the time we get to 50 taters, we've already forgotten it. We need an urgency that the Spirit puts deep within us to help us to see the deep things of God and the call to follow him. And, and, and here, it made me think about, it, it made me think, listen to this. It, uh, one man said, Jeroboam's disobedience affects just, not just his own destiny, not just that of his own house. It affects the destiny of the whole kingdom. The whole kingdom. Hebrews says, take care, brothers, in chapter 3, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, 
as long as it is called today. You remember that, the urgency. The gospel of John is a, is a, is a gospel of urgency. It's urgent. It's not, don't think about belief. Believe now. Those that are unbelieving, the wrath of God lives on them. He's saying, I urge you, believe, believe, believe. Hebrews says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Ephesians 5 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. But finally this morning, not only a call to urgency, a call to action, a call to action. And and where where, where does this come out of? Look at verse 21 down to verse 31. You you see at the end of, of this section in 1 Kings, Notice what happens here. We, we finish off the, the challenge there, but, but look at Jeroboam. The, the text is it's sobering. We read about all of the, of the destruction that would come upon him. And then we read in these verses, verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. And then we get into verse 21. And then verse 21 to 31, what really stood out to me, I believe, is a call to action as we read the storyline. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there, his mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. One thing that hit me a couple of weeks ago when studying this passage was this statement, or statements like this. One said, the individual's mirror are this one. Judah remains for centuries as a prophetic witness against the northern kingdom, but at some time, Israel seduces Judah as the old prophet seduces the man of God from Judah. Isn't that interesting? 1 Kings 13 is not just a call to obedience. It's a reminder of the seducing influence that Judah's big brother had on the south. Judah now is falling into sin. They're living just like their big brother to the north. And even in the judgment Ahijah gives to Jeroboam's wife, He is prophesying of the judgment that would come at the hand of the Assyrians in 722 B.C. That Israel would be in judgment, Assyria would come in and exercise the rod of God's judgment, and now we read that they were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord in verse 22. And we keep going here in in verse 23, for they also, they also, notice how sad this is, in the city that God had desired to make his name glorious. He makes his name glorious around the world, but through the temple and that special city of Jerusalem. For they also built for themselves high places. They built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram. What are the pillars? It's pillars are ways of, uh, it's sacred pillars that aided people in their worship to pagan gods. The ashram were Canaanite fertility goddesses 
and it was the idea of carved wooden images of the goddess. You realize that now all around Jerusalem are these pillars to pagan deities and these idols to the the Asherim, to the Canaanite fertility goddess on every hill, under every green tree. And then it says, and there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. Let us remember as we mourn the condition of our society, not only with heterosexual immorality, but with homosexual immorality. But one thing that's fascinating here, the Hebrew here is bringing out this idea of that which is abhorrent to God, abomination to God. And it speaks, it, it, it often, the term is sometimes translated as sodomite. I'll tell you, um, it grieves my heart not only when what many people now are saying that the church ought to do if they embrace sodomy is that which is pure in the eyes of God. It is blasphemous to the name of God. And we better take it serious because the culture, you're, kids, everyone in here that's young, you're going to grow up in a world that is going to call evil good. And, and, and you need a humility and love, but you need a fierce boldness. I tell you, um, it, it's sad, isn't it, to see what's happening to, it, to Judah. It's sad to think what's happening in many churches. Whether a man gets up behind the pulpit that's living out of heterosexual immorality, it is disqualifying. If a man gets up in a pulpit that is living a gay lifestyle, it is an abomination to God. And when a church takes that in as the leadership and takes people who are living in open, willful rebellion, what happens is the church is no longer a pure church. We've sacrificed at the altar of progressivism, where now we're seeking to be relevant. And I say that only to you because of this. One of the, one of the, the, the heartbeats of preaching is to take what the text reveals and to simply say, how does that shed light on the culture you live in? I'm not seeking to go after anybody. I just want to be sure that we understand God has not stuttered when it comes to that which is moral and that which is not. We keep moving on here. So male cult prostitutes, this is what's happening within the nation. Abominations used. This is, this is Judah. This is Judah, the people of God. This is where the temple resides. Of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and you keep moving on here. And, and, and what you read is, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze 
and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. And here it is. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. What do we learn here? We've got a city that is God's city surrounded by idols, surrounded by idols. And I think it's easy for us, as Stan Gross mentioned earlier in reference in his prayer, it's easy for us to go, man, that's not something I struggle with because me and Charlie, when we were in Myanmar, we slept under a Buddha shelf. We slept under it. It was sort of weird. I was looking up at the idols while we slept. Uh, and, 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 and that was odd because I'd not been in a house like that. But, but again, it, it's easy to think, well, that's not my problem. I don't have that in my house. But, but as Stan alluded to, Stephen Cole says, in the most basic sense, an idol is anything that takes the rightful place of God in your life. Your career, possibly. Your pursuit of money. Your possessions. Excessive devotion to leisure. Recreation. Or even putting a human relationship above your relationship with God may all become idols. He says, putting your intellect above God's revelation is idolatry. He says, watching hours of inane or immoral TV shows each week, spending hours playing computer games, one not having time to spend with God is idolatry. At the root of all these is the idol of self. The idolater has not yielded the throne of his life to the true God. I say that to you not to condemn you, but I say that to you to encourage you of the scripture's exhortation and command First John says something that we heard Kenny read earlier. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We as New Covenant Christians look back at the history of Israel and we see the people of God, the people that were called to be lights for him. They were living in Jerusalem with idols. They were going after idols. What can we learn? What can we learn? Looking back at them, what can we learn? I think one thing that we see is a call to action Because recognizing that idols are something we all face, we all deal with in our hearts, understand that that we have to be active in our response. And, And John, the apostle, says, keep yourself, watch yourself, guard yourself, keep, I mean, this is an active word. It's it's a command, it's not a passive, it's recognize the danger here. And then I thought about another thing here that, that I learned in studying this. This, this really challenged me. Ralph Davis talks about, you know, at the end of, of, of chapter 14, 19 through 20, remember what it said? It says, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they're written in the book of Chronicles. And Davis goes, the writer's clear that he has not been, that, that has not been his interest. He is not focused on the, those matters. He has been deliberately selective, David says. He has centered on how Jeroboam worshipped. If you want to look at how he warred and how he reigned, go to Chronicles. If you want to look at how he worshipped, this is what I'm talking about right here. What can we learn? pray we can today, by the grace of Jesus Christ, we can look at our hearts and we can look at our worship. Uh, Davis goes on and he says something that convicted me. He says, accomplishments don't matter. 
You know, you could look at his wars and you could look at all these other things. He says, verse 19 is frightening. All the energy and exertion you have poured into making your mark and your calling may prove one huge irrelevance. The only thing that matters is whether you worship Yahweh alone. Were you contented with the real God? We think verse 19 is only a throwaway biographical note. Actually, it's a disturbing world view. He goes down, apply it to yourself. If it's your obituary, does it really matter that you built a successful business from scratch or retired from your company after 30 years of stellar service or belong to the Rotary Club or love science fiction movies or played bridge every Monday night with your social clique? Does anything matter if you don't worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you what what hits me because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, friend. Today, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. The Holy Spirit is calling you to a better way. And Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And, and, and today, a call to urgency, a call to action, guard your heart. I think it begins with prayer. Lord, help me to see the urgency. Lord, help me to see this priority you've called me to of worship. At that point, I think for the Christian, it's thank you, O oh God, that your son has provided forgiveness of sin, and through your Holy Spirit, now and only now can I offer worship. God, would you help me to be compelled by thanksgiving because of what Christ has done for me? And here, friend, it's, uh, I pray we look at this and say, oh God, oh God, oh God, how do I respond? So I feel this morning the appropriate way to respond is, can we just reverently bow our heads. Mike's going to come, but can you bow your heads with me? And can we call out to God and say, oh God, I'm prone to the very same decisions and choices that I see even characteristic of Jeroboam, Rehoboam. It could be today that the God who sees all sees your heart and sees that you are condemned before him eternally. And this morning, I want to invite you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's hope for you, friend. I'm so thankful you're here because we all stand condemned when we look at our life before a holy God. But we're here today to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, God could never save me. I've got great news for you. Christ died for sinners. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friend, look to Jesus, trust in him, and he will save you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, trust in him. But but Christian, today let's pray. Let's pray, all of us. God, would you help me to learn from what we're learning in 1 Kings 14? And oh God, by your grace and through power of your spirit, may I walk obediently before you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, just the joy of being with your people, looking at your word. I thank you that we look at it through the lens of the hope that your son has brought. 
I thank you for that, God. We'd have no hope. We'd have no chance. But I pray, Lord, that we would learn, even as those now who stand having been made right with you, Father, through the blood of your precious Son, I pray today, Lord, we would see the urgency in which you call us to redeem the time in our lives, to not do it to earn your favor, to do it because of your favor, compelled by love and gratitude. But Lord, I pray that we would see the danger of false worship, that we would see that because of what Christ has done for us, you now called us to worship you, offering up our lives. And Lord, I pray that that would begin in very practical areas of our life where we're faced with opportunities to die to our own way and to trust your word, to trust your way, to trust when it doesn't make sense. God, to to offer up our bodies, to offer up our lives, to, Lord, to submit our minds to you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me in these last couple moments.